You're listening to Desi Women Diaspora, Episode 6. For 30 years, Saki has worked to end domestic violence against South Asian women. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 or visit them at sakhi.org. Welcome, listeners, to They See Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Malo Kumar. Today, my guest is Mila Chadaimari, who is an astrophysicist based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Mila. Hi. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being here. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. So let's get straight into it. I see from what you've told me that you have grown up in a couple of countries around the world. Can you tell me about your childhood and what ultimately led you to Yale? Yeah, sure. So um, I grew up in Moscow in Russia, and that basically happened because in the USSR, they used to give out a lot of scholarships to students from developing countries. Uh, My dad got one of these and went to Moscow in the 70s to study Slavic linguistics and history. He really liked it there, and he briefly moved back to India to be a professor of Russian literature, but he really loved literature, and his university didn't care as much about it, so he Uh, told them he was sick and went back to Moscow to start his own business. That was a couple weeks before the USSR fell apart. And I was born a couple weeks later and moved to Moscow when I was six months old. So I lived there until I was 12. And then I moved back to Kerala for what was supposed to be a temporary move because my dad was, you know, taking care of his business. Unfortunately, during that time, he got cancer and passed away. And um, so it seemed like we were going to be in India uh, for the long term. But one of the last things that he did before he passed away was uh, sign my application to this amazing international boarding school in Pune, which is in central India. And I got a full scholarship to go there to finish high school. And from there, I ended up getting another full scholarship to come to the U.S. for undergrad. So I went to Brown and studied physics. After that, I took a brief detour uh, into the world of investment. I worked in New York City for a year. That didn't go very well. Um, But it really taught me that I wanted to be a scientist uh, after all. And I got extremely lucky and was introduced to this professor at Yale who really took a chance on me and hired me as a research assistant for a year, uh, after which I applied into the PhD program and got in. And so now I am in the fourth year of my PhD and I'll be finishing the rest of my research here at the Smithsonian Observatory in Cambridge. Wow, that is quite a story. <laughs> Congratulations on full, two full scholarships. You sound like the perfect Indian stereotype. <laughs> I know, a little bit, yeah. but I'm not a doctor, I promise. That's true, yeah, that's true. And you did go to Wall Street. There's nothing like going to Wall Street to figure out you want to be a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Um, well, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your father passing, especially when you were so young. I'm sure that's a really difficult time to, to talk about, but in that same period. What was it like going to a boarding school in India when I guess a huge part of you was Russian? Yeah. So actually the boarding school was probably the most comfortable that I felt in India because it was a very, very international place. Uh, It's called the United World College and I love it with all my heart. 
It's a group of schools around the world. And the way it works is every, uh, it's just the last two years of high school. It's about 100 kids per class who come from all over the world. So you apply to a selection committee in your country. And then uh, so each country decides which people from their country will go to a United World College. And then there's sort of this worldwide sorting process where you get allocated based on, you know, funding and student preferences and all of this. So basically our school was only 30% Indian and then 70% people from a whole lot of different countries. I really like environments like that. I um, felt a little out of place uh, in Kerala because you know, I mean, I was always seen as this weirdo for having grown up abroad, which was not an experience I shared with a lot of people. And so it was actually quite comfortable being in this environment where people had actually sought out other people who were interested in meeting people very different from themselves. Um, so it was a really nourishing environment. And I think it actually made dealing with the grief of losing my father a lot easier because I uh, knew that I was doing something that, you know, we had dreamed of together and I knew that he would be really proud of me. Um, sort of a lot of what I've done in my life has really been inspired by him. I think he's the coolest person I know. Oh, and no. so, <laughs> so, so it, uh, so it was, it was uh, really helpful to follow through all the plans that we had made together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he would be so proud to see where you are now. <sighs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell me about the contrast between how you conducted yourself or introduced yourself in Kerala versus how you introduced yourself in Russia versus your school in Pune. Uh, totally. So actually, one of the bigger aspects of this is just what name I use. So my name is Ormila, which is a beautiful Indian name, and I do love it. When I was in Russia, however, um, people had a really hard time pronouncing it. And if you pronounce it with a Russian accent, it's Urmila, which a convenient diminutive would be Mila. And, you know, I was there till I was 12. So I was always very annoyed that people couldn't pronounce it correctly and assumed that my name was a Russian one, which is Ludmila. And so sort of to just get around that hassle, I would often introduce myself as just Mila to Russians. But I did go to an Indian school, so uh, I would just code switch. And uh, it's still the same. Uh, when I'm in India, I introduce myself as Urmila if I meet Indians, depending on the context, uh, I use that name. But otherwise, I, for a very long time, just couldn't deal with the mispronunciation. So I did this. <laughs> Although that's something that I think about maybe changing now. Other than that, I've always felt most comfortable describing myself as I'm from Kerala. I grew up in Russia. I think those two things. Uh, I think that's enough for people to get like a basic picture of me. Yeah. And then, you know, people have different questions about that, depending on who's in the room. But I think that's sort of the most convenient description. What was the Indian? You said you went to an Indian school in Moscow? That's right. So um, it's the Kendri Vidyale. So anyone who has ever lived in India has heard of the central schools. They're basically the, the central government chain of public schools. Uh, and there's actually three branches abroad. So they're in Moscow, in Kathmandu, in Nepal, and also in Tehran, in Iran. Uh, weirdly, so I went to the Indian Embassy School in Moscow. And I really loved it. I, I feel so grateful for, for the friends that I had. I, I just, I realize now that I've met a lot of different people that it was really astonishing just like the quality of people in that school. Because first of all, the students 
well, you know, there, there were sort of two crews. There were us long-term kids um, who were basically people whose families had settled in Moscow. And then there were kids of diplomats. And I was in team A, sort of. And so you have a school that's filled with either kids whose parents were scholars in the USSR and all now became businessmen, but basically their parents are scholars, or you have this crew whose parents are diplomats. So they're a pretty high achieving bunch overall. And I remember people always ask me how I got into astronomy. Uh, It was just a cool thing to do in second grade. Uh, We were always exchanging encyclopedias about planets and space, and I just never stopped liking astronomy. So because of that, I sort of grew up already with a lot of uh, friends from different countries because all the children of diplomats of other developing countries would basically send their kids to our school because there were only two English-speaking schools in Moscow at the time. I don't know if it's changed, but at the time it was us and the Anglo-American school. And the Anglo-American school was four times more expensive. So basically only the developed country diplomats could afford to send their kids there. So it was a bit of a divide, but I ended up having a lot of friends from uh, a lot of African countries, a lot of other Asian countries. And yeah, it's just something that I really liked. That's really cool. What was it like being one of the permanent kids there? Because actually in one of our earlier podcasts back in November, um, Noor Shams also grew up partially in in Moscow and she was, she's the daughter of diplomats. So she was telling me about her transient lifestyle, and it sounds like you had your your home. Your home base is very much in Moscow. So what was it like, your experience, compared to those other diplomats, as she would call them? <laughs> I'm glad she used that word. <laughs> yeah, it was quite different. So we basically called ourselves like the business kids, even though we were not anyhow related to business. We all ended up being scientists, by the way, that entire crew. Um, <laughs> But but, uh, but the difference was, well, first of all, we were all fluent in Russian, um, whereas the diplomat kids were not. And this was actually kind of a huge rift. I remember regularly feeling annoyed and offended by diplomat kids who would come in and say things like, Russian is ugly or stupid and I don't want to study it. And that was just offensive because we were like, well, this is where we live. And it's actually like a really great language. And you already speak, you know, two or three languages. What's another one to you? So that was that was definitely part of it. This sort of notion that people are coming into Moscow and not respecting what we saw as our culture. Of course, not all the dip kids were like that. It's only it was only a subset. And so, on the other hand, it was really great to meet people who had lived in all these other places, right? Because I actually hadn't traveled anywhere besides Kerala you know, maybe a couple other states in South India and Moscow. That was my entire life experience. Uh, so it was really cool to meet people who had lived in Bhutan and, you know, Nigeria and Afghanistan. And so, so yeah, it was, it was cool to meet people from all these other places. But ultimately, there was always this divide, which mostly had to do with language and respecting the place where we were all staying. Do you have any siblings? I do. Yeah, I have a younger sister. Um, Her name is Shalini. And uh, we ended up having really different life paths because when we moved to India, she was only nine. And so she fit right in, right? Uh, She just immediately made a lot of friends. It didn't seem to be as big of a deal at her age that she had lived abroad as it was for me just two years older, really. And so she has lived in India ever since. Uh, She's now a lawyer in Bangalore, which is a 
huge tech center, of course, mm-hmm. as you know. So she is the in-house legal counsel for a huge tech company. And she's awesome. But we, we, ju- we just have very different life trajectories. Yeah, that's cool, though. I mean, most of my family is actually from Bangalore. I, I know the city pretty well. So oh, it's a, yeah, it's, cool. a good, it's a good place to end up in India. I think if you still want a bit of that international life, but don't want to leave India, it's open. Yeah, almost all my cousins live in Bangalore at this point. <laughs> That's where all the um, jobs are. <laughs> yeah, my cousins yeah. are like, oh man, we can't come to the States, there are no jobs. I'm like, oh. <laughs> no shortage. Well, yeah. probably some shortage, but I think we, we're biased towards coming from relatively, you know, access to jobs, families. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. That's interesting. So I, yeah, I, I hear you on that though. I think observing all of my friends from different stages, it seems like, those kids who came between the ages of 12 to 14, that's kind of like that very tender, critical time where wherever you are at that stage is kind of how you identify for the rest of your life. So that's interesting that even just two year difference made such a big impact on how you guys associated what's home. Yeah, it's really true. My <laughs> my sister always makes fun of me when she hears the accent that I have around other people. I don't know if you experience this as well, but my accent changes all the time. And so <laughs> when I <laughs> when I speak to my sister or my mother or anyone in India really, I really really have a strong Indian accent in my English or honestly with most of my relatives I just speak in Malayalam. But if I try to speak English and I haven't, you know, it takes me like a day or so to really transition back into an Indian accent. Uh, and, and, and if my sister catches me during that one day, she will give me a hard time about it. So, <laughs> so I actually really appreciate having her in my life because, you know, at the end of the day, I am Indian and I do go home about once a year. And when I just see stuff in the news, I, I really lack a lot of context for understanding what's happening right and so i feel like my sister is the the perfect person to like understand where i'm coming from and how i would probably respond to things but also actually having the context of living there and did your mother end up staying in india as well yeah so my mother still lives in kerala in kochi um which is um this it's sort of the the commercial capital of Kerala, um, and she works in the tourism industry. She actually has a really cool job where she organizes tours, um, educational, uh, cultural, and ecological tours for uh, people and organizations, mostly in Europe and the U.S. So yeah, it's it's really great. She basically discovers all the beautiful cultural and um, natural gems in Kerala, and uh, and shows them to really curious, smart people. Cool. That sounds like a good contrast of jobs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yes, we have a range in our family. Saki exists to end domestic and sexual violence against South Asian women. Although domestic violence has long been a silent subject in the community, two in five South Asian immigrant women in the U.S. are survivors. In its 30 years, Saki has united survivors, communities, and institutions to create powerful and sustainable change. Saki offers a range of services for the community. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 and to learn more, visit their website at sakhi.org or follow them on Twitter at sakhinyc. So when you were in Moscow growing up and then when you transitioned over to your international boarding school in Pune, what did you want to be growing up in Moscow and did that change coming over? Yes. So I wanted to be an astronomer since I was eight. 
Um, and growing up in Moscow, I mean, there's just so much history around space, right? I mean, we sent the first man into space, the first woman into space, the first animals into space, the first satellite, everything, right? So space was just cool and it was everywhere. And growing up, you know, I have Indian parents. So I had this very strong notion that a successful career involved science. And I was like, well, this is handy because I can use math and physics to do astronomy, which I think is cool. So um, I wanted to do astronomy since I was very little. And so by the time I was in middle school, I was like, it's cooler if I use a lot of math for it. So I should probably be a theorist. So it, I think people in the U.S. often find this confusing. But in India, really, as you, you've probably experienced, you really are the cool kid if you're good at math and science. So I am not going to lie that I was partially driven by wanting to be cool. And I was good at math. So I decided to go the astrophysics route. But when I lived in India, I definitely experienced pushback from my relatives, including my mom on this notion of doing pure science, which, you know, they were, they were coming from a place of good intention because they thought that I should have a job that would pay better. And it's, it's true that in India, it would be very tricky for me to find a decent salary as an astrophysicist. I think things are cha definitely changing now, but sort of, they were just playing the numbers game and saying, you know, maybe you should be an aerospace engineer was sort of the compromise we got to, which I could live with. I was like, okay, I could study making rockets. That's fine. But then I, when I went to boarding school uh, in Pune, so, what, so, so that school, it's called UWC. So when I was at UWC, I had two huge mentors. One of them is basically my second dad. I always call him that. I actually just visited him last month in the Netherlands where he lives now. And he was my maths teacher. His name is Parag and he is just the coolest person. And also our head of college, so basically like principal or whatever, was David Wilkinson. We called him Wilco. And Wilco had PhDs in physics, philosophy, and English literature. And at some point, they or the two of them organized a screening of this documentary about string theory uh, by Brian Greene, who was an astrophysicist at Columbia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just... I've gotten gone into the rabbit hole of watching his videos. Ugh. Oh yeah. <laughs> Three Is days it... later, I'm like, oh my god, the world's a hologram. Why am I here? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So that was me at age 16, being like, who am I kidding? I want to be a theoretical physicist. Like, I don't want to build rockets. And of course. My family panicked, but Wilco and Barag were really happy. Wilco actually gave me his copy of The Trouble with Physics, which is a book by Lee Smolin about open questions in quantum gravity. And I, I loved it. And I was also just really flattered that someone that we all thought was the smartest person we knew wanted me to read this book and thought that I asked a good question after documentary. So those two people really helped me take the plunge so that by the time I got to Brown, I was pretty convinced again that I was going to do theoretical astrophysics. And Brown actually was, was really good for me in terms of pursuing physics. Uh, I had amazing mentors the whole time. And, uh, you know, I got to do a, a good amount of research while I was at Brown. And this is, this had sort of started while I was at the boarding school, I was surrounded by people who were really invested in, you know, changing the world and making the world a better place. Um, and so a lot of my best friends ended up working for my, my best friend works at the UN and a lot of other people work at nonprofits. They're actively, they're like full-time involved in social justice or 
profit or nonprofit enterprises that are involved in making society better, right? Like economic development, education, things like that. And I, I'm really proud of my own family for what it's done on that front. My dad's side of the family, I'm just, they're just incredible. My grandparents, um, they were set up by the Communist Party, of which they were both members, uh, because they were both really active in the independence struggle. And they were like, well, you guys are great, so maybe you should just get married. And they did. And, you know, my dad was born in a car on my grandma's way to a rally. This was after independence, but my grandpa was in the first government of Kerala after independence. And my dad's siblings and a lot of people in that side of the family, they are agricultural scientists, or some of them are still active in the, in the party and do political uh, work. So I just have all of these family members who really <laughs> made our community so much better. My grandpa founded the first trade unions in Kerala. And so I kind of felt really guilty that I was over here pursuing something just for the pleasure of it, right? Because I, I thought space was cool. It was really my only motivation to do that. And so uh, that sort of confusion plagued me the whole time I was at Brown. And ironically, that was why I ended up working at this investment firm, because I heard a lot of stuff from the effective altruist movement, which sort of is this very utilitarian philosophy where they were like, oh, you know, if you want to save the world and you don't you know particularly have an incredible skill set to i don't know like lead a large organization or something like the easiest thing to do is just go make a bunch of money and then donate it to these you know three charities that have the most bang for your buck and i was like okay and also i wanted to work for the un but i had no econ background and so i thought okay well if i take this job at an investment firm then i can learn something about economics i can maybe apply to a master's program in development economics and eventually switch over to the UN. In the meantime, I could donate more money to these charities. But that, uh, that just really backfired because I hated my job. I thought it was incredibly boring. I kept getting into trouble for making mistakes on Excel spreadsheets. It also just blew my mind how messed up the financial sector was. I, I just genuinely had no idea. It took me three months to figure out that derivatives were actually just bets. I kept asking my boss, I was like, wait, our money is like going eventually like to some company to like help them invest in their resources, right? And it took me three months to realize that no, it was really just a bet. So I was clearly not a good fit for the company. And uh, I left after that one year. But ironically, eventually... I ended up getting an internship offer from the UN at their Office of Outer Space Affairs, uh, for which they wanted astronomers. <laughs> so it's, it's been a long journey of realizing that I actually found it really helpful to remember that Einstein uh, was a refugee. He did a lot of his crucial work during the First World War and then, I guess, by the time of the Second World War, <laughs> sort of the peak of his career was over. But even post-peak Einstein is doing more work than most of us. So just sort of knowing that even during these very tumultuous times, a lot of really incredible science was done and I'm really grateful for it. And that it would be, it would have been really tragic if uh, all of this work hadn't happened when other bad things were happening in the world. So at the same time, I think it's super important for people like me who are so privileged to literally get paid a decent amount of money to sit around and think about space. I really think we have a responsibility to uh, you know, show up and be allies for people when they need it. And also have these conversations 
you know, about the role that our academic institutions play in upholding explicitly or implicitly any of these systems of, of power. Yeah, no, that's, it's interesting what you say about the guilt part, because I, I do work for the United Nations. I've worked there for a oh, long yeah. time. And I, I always felt guilty doing what I do because my dad being, again, the perfect India stereotype is a cardiologist. Uh -huh. He's a doctor. Uh -huh. So he's like literally saving people as they're dying of a heart attack. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm sitting there like do to do lofty goals. Let's talk about the long-term plan of this country that I've been to for like three weeks. <laughs> you know, like what, what can I possibly do to help a country? What am I really doing to help somebody? So that immediate gratification of actually helping save a life was never, is never going to be part of my work. And I get that. Like I might help right. somebody in the long term. maybe always build some capacity. Maybe they'll learn something from me that they didn't have access to otherwise, but it's unlikely that I'll save their life in the same way that my dad did. So that kind of guilt was always there right. for me. And so it's, I, I hear what you're saying, but I do think at the end of the day, we have to go with what we're passionate about, what we're good at. And if we can do that to the best of our ability and kind of push the bounds of knowledge, then we're adding something very important. So I think what you're doing it's, is important. <laughs> it's really blowing my mind that you working at the UN feel that way. There's a quote that one of the secretary generals of the UN said that the UN was not founded to make heaven on earth, but to save earth from hell. So that's how mm. I look at a lot of the work that we do. So all things considered with your career and I guess with the state of the world, really, do you plan on staying in the States? Yeah. Oh, gosh, this is something I've been thinking about a lot in the last year, because when I came to the U.S., I really I was really scared of the U.S. when I came here. All I had heard about was all the wars that it waged. Mass shootings. Uh, that's one thing I hear all the time. Legitimately, I understand that concern. I don't want yeah. to die in a mass shooting. Yeah. Right. So I was I was really scared and I thought I would come here and leave after undergrad. But, you know, one thing led to another, and now it's been nine years, and I'm still here. And it's, it's, it's really tricky, because objectively speaking, uh, there are places where I would have better opportunities. The number one on my, on my list would basically be Germany, which really wants foreign scientists, right? They have an entire agency, the day a day, which is set up just to fund foreign scientists at all levels, in all fields. I think I'm just going to apply to jobs everywhere and see what happens. You know, and then it becomes just a little tricky in terms of, you know, where do I want to settle down? My instinct for the first many years that I was here was, wow, I, I feel so uncomfortable in a place that's this capitalistic. Um, I really don't like still what the U.S. is doing abroad. I pay taxes here and those taxes are funding a lot of these things that I really hate. And I really think the ethical thing for me to do is to move somewhere else. And now on the other hand, you know, I, I'm in all these positions of, of power again, where I can actually like talk to people and have some sort of effect that I might not have if I were to move to another place and have to grow roots all over again. So for example, while I was at Yale, I had a fellowship. Well, I had like a position at the Global Affairs Institute, which is actually just across the street from the astronomy department. And so I got to work with a Belgian minister who is awesome. And she's also in the European parliament and she's the minister of migration for a while. 
And so we did some work together on, she and my Bangladeshi roommate actually ended up drafting a statement for the European Parliament on the Rohingya refugee crisis. My roommate and I collaborated with a bunch of other students uh, at various grad programs in the US to organize a huge fundraiser for various relief operations in Bangladesh. And we raised, I don't know, like tens of thousands of dollars, which none of us expected. And so the part that, that makes me uncomfortable about the US is how much inequality there is. But then the part that I'm starting to come to terms with is that I, I'm like relatively well off, right? Uh, like in terms of the people I have access to. So I could do, I could make a difference. Yeah, so, well, it's, a, it's a good point you bring up. I mean, I've thought about the same thing a lot because if you look at your own personal socioeconomic status, and not just where you are, but where you're assumed to be as mm-hmm. an Indian American, as a, an Indian living in the States, you are just assumed to be smart, to be, yes. well, to be well-groomed, to have a good job to be honest, to work hard. And so all of these things really play into how people treat you, how they perceive you. And while we're obviously not at the white male status of social, you know, the social echelon, we're not exactly at the bottom either. But then going to Europe, I think there's, in some countries there's an unknown. And then in other countries, there's just the stated assumption that you're somebody's wife if you're a a woman or that you're Mm -hmm. not as well adjusted as you could be as an Indian in the States. So I think it's a legit yeah. concern, especially when you get to be, you know, your age, my age, and you start to think about, do I want a family? Do I want to settle down somewhere? Do I want kids? Like, what, what is it that yeah. I'm going for in my personal life? It's, it's a tough question. Okay, yeah. so to kind of bring it all together, thinking yeah. about your education, your professional life, family, friends, everything, what is one piece of advice that you would like the United States to learn from your experience in Russia and in India growing up? I think... Number one is to not be scared of socialism. Oh my God, I deal with this all the time. <laughs> yeah. All the time. I mean, my, uh, two of my American friends came to Kerala with me last year and there are just communist flags flying around everywhere, right? <laughs> it's just normal. Yeah. And they were like, oh my God, what is happening? But also they were really impressed because we went to Bangalore first and then we went to Kerala and Bangalore, super glamorous, cool. I, I definitely grant all of that, but they, they were sort of taken aback by how on the one hand, you, there were these amazing skyscrapers and, you know, gorgeous condos. My sister lives in one of those, but then you walk one minute and then there are pigs eating dirt and people yeah. living in slums. Whereas once you come to Kerala, you don't see really luxury condos like that. Uh, but you also definitely don't see nearly that level of poverty, right? Yeah, and that income uh, inequality and is really stark in Bangalore. It's true. I wrote my thesis on that. It's it's gotten really yeah, it's gotten considerably worse post tech industry for sure. Oh my god, I would really uh, like to put you in touch with my cousin who is uh, an economist. Uh, she's a professor at an IIM, and mm-hmm. she does a lot of research into how laborers are displaced from their homes in Bangalore and places like that. So yeah, I would absolutely. just yeah, <laughs> I definitely. feel like you could have great conversations. <laughs> But, uh, but, you know, in Kerala, all the billboards are like, uh, here's free education that you can have. Here's free healthcare that you have access to. I was really, really happy when Kochi built a metro recently and the city decided to only hire single women and transgender people to operate these, the system. Really? So, That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. So everybody who works for the Kochi metro is a single woman or a transgender person. That's amazing. And, wow. Yeah. And then 
they also took account of the fact that society is still not overall that open-minded and they realized that these people would have trouble finding housing and so they actually built staff residential quarters for these people you know like it was just this very impressively welfare-oriented approach of like these are people who have trouble and these are the problems that they will face even if we give them this one thing the job and so it was I was really impressed by that yeah so I would say number one is don't be scared of socialism it's really can really do good for you and then the the second thing that has really stood out to me it's getting better but it's definitely still there is the gender gap in stem right it might it, i'm sure it exists in other fields as well but stem is what i know yeah it's also um, getting worse in the states sadly this is actually something that's much better in in russia and kerala right because the explanation i got in russia was if you're having a people's revolution, you can't leave behind half the population. Um, and so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so my, uh, my first astronomy teacher was a woman. She was a retired professor from Moscow State, Aidar Kadirna. And so I had these role model woman astronomers since I was little. I never, ever thought that it was anyhow weird to be a woman who was good at math. My mother has a master's degree in math. A lot of my aunts are scientists. In fact, I mean, there are absolutely gender-based stereotypes in India, as we all know. But the one in Kerala is that women are better at pure reasoning and men are better with their hands or with business, right? So if anything, all the stereotypes, if there were stereotypes, they implied that I was going to be good at math. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it, it would be really great if people here looked more towards other places, especially places that they consider sort of inferior to them, right? And see, oh, well, look at this developing country or look at this place that we think is the worst place ever because communism but look at how they have managed to completely normalize uh women being good at stem like it's absurd that just a couple terms ago the president of harvard (laughs) where i am now said that male and female brains are just wired differently and so women are not as good at scientific reasoning and uh that's such garbage which has been disproved by (laughs) scientific work since then uh, and before then. But just the notion that people who are presidents of you know, the most elite educational institution in the US can say things like that or think things like that, to me, it means that they really need to, to really take a look around the world and see how that's just factually not true and how much of that is culture that they have normalized, which is not mm-hmm. you know, natural law. Yeah, no, that's, a really, that's a great point. And then yeah. to kind of reverse that, if you could look into the future as a kid growing up in Moscow or at your school in India, what's one thing that you wish you had known from your experience in the States back then? Oh, that's, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the meaning of life? <laughs> yeah. What are, well, okay. I guess, I guess one thing that I do actually really like about the U S um, is this uh, notion that you can learn whatever you want to learn at whatever age, right? Like when I was in Russia, I did ballet when I was three and I was immediately, I I just had this notion everywhere around me that I was too fat to be a ballerina at age three. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and so I, I didn't really stick with it. And uh, then I, you know, I did Indian classical dance as a teenager, but I was always told that I was too fat to be a dancer. And then later that I was too old to start because everyone around me was like, oh, you know, if you want to be a ballerina, you have to start at age three, otherwise it's just not going to happen. Uh, whereas here in the U.S., there's, there's adult beginner classes for pretty much anything that you might want to do. And this is slowly starting to 
to become a thing in other countries as well. When I was in Russia last winter, I saw adult beginner ballet classes for maybe the first time ever. So I guess that's one thing that I wish other communities learned uh, from the way things are here. Just this notion that, you know, if you have a desire to do something, it's not an all or nothing issue. There is there is a middle ground between being a professional at something extremely difficult and not doing it at all, right? So <laughs> yeah. I really wish I had been encouraged to just pursue things for the joy of it uh, much more, uh, which I think is something that's thankfully more encouraged in the U.S. That's true. We do have a lot of amateur hours for pretty much everything in America. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good. People yeah. can explore it's really cool. Yeah, it is cool. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So I think those are all my questions. Did you have anything else that you wanted me to ask you? Uh, not really. No, I mean, I have questions about you, but I feel like I would just ask that in a separate conversation. But this was really great. Thanks so much for being on the show, Mila. And thanks to our listeners. Join us next time on They See Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of They See Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash Joseph McDade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Mila Chadaimuri. <laughs>